sitting, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Leviticus, please. Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus 24, it's where I want to direct your attention this morning. Uh, Leviticus is one of the first books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. And we're going to read, I'm going to read from Leviticus 24, verses 10 through the end. Um, so if you'll turn there with me, that would be uh, just excellent. Leviticus chapter 24, and we'll start in verse 10. Follow along as I read from God's word. This is what the text says. Now the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse, so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilometh, the daughter of Debri the Danite. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire, entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them. Whether foreigner or native-born, when they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who, may, who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the Israelites and they took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him. The Israelites did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, if you have ever struggled with taking the Bible and the God who speaks through it seriously, this is perhaps a passage that does not help in your struggle. Now, this appears to be the story of an overly sensitive, self-important, vengeful God, a God who bears very little resemblance to the Lord Jesus, who himself, when talking about this very passage, said, turn the other cheek. There's a big difference between turning the other cheek and stoning someone. Up. Yet, we have it open before us, and I'm glad for a number of reasons. This is a, a, a very important passage. It helps us think through some crucial issues. In fact, here's some reasons why I'm glad that we're looking at this passage this morning. First, this passage is going to help us think about ethics in the public square. It helps us think about ethics in the public square. There are a number of deep-seated issues in this passage for us to consider. There's the issue of race and ethnicity. Uh, the sanctity of life, issues of justice. These are deep and important issues. This past week, uh, our country marked both uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day and uh, we passed the uh, 41st anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision that legalized abortion. And this is a passage that helps us remember or, or points us in thinking about both of those important days. So it helps us think about ethics in the public square. Another reason why I'm, I'm glad to have this passage open to you is that it helps us understand that Leviticus is part of a story. 
Uh, This is the second story in the whole book of Leviticus. Through this time, we have been reading a lot of law, but here's a story. And some people say, well, why is this story here? On the one hand, this story could be here in this place because it happened at this moment. After God revealed the legislation in Leviticus 24, verses 1 through 9, this fight started. And uh, so Moses is just recording things in order. Could be. Maybe Moses, though, uh, put this story here so that we would have a a reminder, an an illustration. The first story in in the book of Leviticus is in chapter 8. Chapters 1 through 7 are about making sacrifices, and in chapter 8 is about a priest who who fail, and and God punishes them. Then chapters 11 up through here are about how everybody else is supposed to live in the presence of God, what sort of rules they're supposed to follow. And here is another story of of somebody failing. So maybe Moses is is using this as an illustration. that's, That's possible. But but of equal importance, I think, to to these is the understanding that we have that even though Leviticus is a lot of law, it is still part of a grander story. It's a story that begins in the book of Genesis when God calls Abraham and tells him that he's going to turn his family into a great nation. And here, 500 years later, this is the nation receiving their law. Uh, This law, this nation is a theocracy. God is the king. The laws are important. We have been uh, by the, the sound room keeps track of these things. This is, I think, my 31st sermon from the book of Leviticus. And you can lose track of the grander story when you, we spend so much time looking at this law. But, but this is part of the story, just part of the story. Maybe you could think about Leviticus in some ways like the rules that I used to read at camp. During my summers in college, I worked at a camp, and one summer I was the program director, and every Monday at lunchtime, I had to share some rules with the campers. Now, the rules were not the whole story. It was not their entire experience of camp. In fact, we didn't really want that to be. How foolish, what a loss it would be if all the children had to say when they got home to their parents was, wow, we followed a lot of rules. The rules are actually there what to enliven and, and uh, enhance their camping experience. It was within the context of the rules that they had to enjoy all the great stuff that we have planned for them. Other books in the Bible tell this, this grand story, but Leviticus here is to shape the people in the midst of it. This is how to, how to thrive and enjoy and live out the story. And here we see some real people with real faces who... Um, are encountering loss in the midst of this story. Now, here's a third reason that that this passage helps us, why it's good to look at it. It helps us consider how much out of alignment we are with what the Bible reveals about God. It helps us think about how much we are out of alignment with what the Bible says about God. Now, you have some good questions, I think, based on this passage. Does this seem petty to anybody that God would demand this man be stoned or or extreme? Uh, Does this man really deserve to die for what he's done? There is apparently no freedom of speech woven into the Constitution uh, of Israel. It's not in the Bible. There's a rule that we all know. It's not true, but we try to convince one another that it's true. Uh, It's a a marvelous insight. You know what the, the rule is? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not true in this case. <laughs> stones broke his bones. That, that, that's right. But it was his words that got him into trouble, isn't it? Oh. 
up. Is God vain? Is God temperamental? Is God petty? Is he sensitive? You can struggle with that, but I wonder, I'd like to suggest to you, I wonder if what is happening as we read this story is not that God is on trial, but that we are on trial. What if we think about what our reaction to this story tells us about what we believe about who God is and who we are? If that, uh, that, that question of, of who, if, if, what if this is a mirror that's showing us more about us than it is about God? If a person were to read some of Shakespeare's sonnets and pick them up and read that beautiful language and then throw it away or walk out of a Beethoven concert and, and say to himself or to anybody listening, this is meaningless trash. What dribble. This is terrible. What is this stuff? That person is actually saying more about themselves than they are about Shakespeare or Beethoven, right? What if, what if when we read this story and, and we're tempted to go, oh, this God, what's he like? What if you're actually saying more about your, yourself? I want to think about that. Here's how I want to proceed. I want to move through this, this passage under four key issues in this text. They, they overlap, but we're going to talk about them individually as, as best we can. Here are those four issues that come up in this text. Race and ethnicity, life, justice, and God's name. This passage does not say everything that the Bible says about those four issues, but it puts some boundaries, some markers around us in, in thinking about these issues. So, so let's... let's walk through this, shall we? We're going to start by thinking about race and ethnicity. Um, ethnicity is a crucial part of, of the story. These, these events begin with a fight that broke out between an Israelite man and a non-Israelite man, a, a person of mixed heritage, a non-covenant person who was traveling with them. He was half Egyptian and half Israelite. The Bible tells us that when the Israelites left Egypt, there were Egyptians who followed along with them, who came with them. Now, why did they go? Probably for a number of reasons. Maybe, like this man's father, it appears, uh, they had relationships with uh, the Israelites and they wanted to go. If my wife is leaving, I'm going to go with her. Maybe some of the Egyptians were just in despair, but their country had been decimated by the plagues, and maybe they just wanted to get out want a new life somewhere else. Maybe, though, they followed along, some of them, I'm sure, because they had genuine faith in Yahweh's God, in, in Israel's God, Yahweh. They, they were really following. We, we, huh, your God is stronger than any of the gods in Egypt. We're going with you. Now, uh, scholar Roy Gain, and I did not realize this until this week. I, I didn't know this. Um, the non-Israelites lived in a different part of the camp. We'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, why that might be. But they lived in a separate area. And that's the story says, this man, this non-Israelite, came out among the Israelites. I wonder if that's the issue that started the fight. You're not where you belong. I hesitate to bring this up because it's such a charged issue. But, but that was one of the things that people were wondering about or thinking about or often charged in, in uh, George Zimmerman's case. You remember that? George Zimmerman, he sees Trayvon Martin. And was George Zimmerman think, thinking to himself, you're not where you belong? Is that what's happening here in this text? 
whether or not that's the issue, a fight breaks out here and the non-Israelite blasphemes. We're not exactly sure what he said, but everybody recognized this is a violation of the third commandment against the misuse of God's name. And the people put him in custody and they summon Moses. And there's some uncertainties here and they need God to tell them, what should we do? We don't know. Here are the questions that they would have in mind. First, what's the appropriate punishment? Exodus 20, verse 7, says that misusing God's name is, is a violation of God's will. But what happens? It doesn't specify any sort of punishment. So what are they supposed to do with this man? Another question they might have is, who is supposed to, to uh, enact the punishment? Is it going to be uh, God himself? That's what happened in Leviticus chapter 8. Is God himself going to deal with this? Or are the Israelites, the, 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 the civil, is this a civil justice matter? That's the question they would have. Third, they would probably have a question, does it make a difference whether or not this man is a covenant Israelite? Should he be treated different? How important is his ethnicity to what happens to him? Now, that question might sound strange to us, but, but it, it makes sense as we understand how the Bible unfolds. See, the Israelites themselves, they are God's chosen people. He chose them among all nations of the earth to live with and among them. He didn't choose them for their own sake, but he chose them so that they could be a blessing to others. And there are passages in the Pentateuch, in the book of Leviticus and elsewhere, that emphasize Israel's chosenness as the special people of God. And there's some passages that emphasize the fact that they're to be a conduit to, for blessing to others. Here, uh, for example, look on your note sheet that's in the bulletin. I printed this out. Deuteronomy uh, 23, 7 and 8. Look what it says here. This is emphasizing Israel's chosenness. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. Do not despise an Edomite, for the Edomites are related to you. Do not despise an Egyptian, because you resided as foreigners in their country. The third generation of children born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. There is uh, this, these verses that emphasize you are, you are God's chosen people. I'm going to bless the world through you, and, 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 and uh, you're most specifically mine. There's verses that emphasize this chosenness, but there are verses also in passages that emphasize the blessing. Think about what Rahab, she's not an Israelite, but she was blessed by God. Or Ruth, oh, Ruth, a wretched Moabite in this passage. And what happens? She comes into the line of the Lord Jesus himself. It was through the Israelites that Naaman, an Assyrian, is healed from his leprosy. So the Bible emphasizes both of these things in the Old Testament, the chosenness of Israel and their, their role as a conduit for God's blessing. So uh, this, what happens to this non-Israelite is not a, a completely strange question. I actually think that this balance between Israel's chosenness and her role as a source of blessing is supposed to prepare the world for the Lord Jesus. To know God, to approach God, to honor God, you have to come through his son. In the ancient world, to know God, you had to worship at the Israelite temple through the Israelite priests. Now we come through the Lord Jesus. You cannot know God, you cannot obey God, you cannot have a relationship with God without the Lord Jesus. Now these, these ethnic distinctions in the Old Testament are eradicated in the New Testament church. 
That's Paul's message. It's his message in Galatians. It's his message in Ephesians. It's almost in every single one of his letters how God has in the church brought us together regardless of our ethnicity, Jew and Gentile, together in Christ we are, Paul says in Ephesians 2, one new man. You know what that means here is that you have more in common with an African-American man who is a follower of Jesus than you do with your cousin who is not. It doesn't feel that way sometimes, does it? Why not? Because of our diverse cultures, different flavors of culture. But to ignore what we have in common through Christ in favor of our culture is an example of the triumph of the temporary over the eternal. It's a great loss. Now, they wait for God to speak here in this story. Uh, what is God going to tell us to do? And God sets down a principle for them that carries forward. He says it twice, once in verse 16 and once in verse 22. Look at it in verse 22 here. He said this earlier, but we'll repeat it. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. Everyone, regardless of their race or ethnicity, is equally accountable to God. And there's to be no special treatment, no favoritism, no higher or lower standards, no special exemptions for certain races or classes. Every person is to receive, and we are familiar with this phrase, right? Equal treatment under the law. The goal of any society living under God in the world that he has made is to ensure that everyone is treated equally at the bar of justice. Martin Luther King Jr. went to war over civil rights, and he went with his words, and he got his words from the Bible. He, he was representing Scripture accurately when he was calling for uh, social justice and racial justice. Now, this continues here. We're going to press this as we move forward. Secondly, into the issue of life, the issue of life. In verses 17 through 21, uh, 22, what happens here is that God expands these laws. He gives them a very specific, first, here's what to do with this man, but let me expand on some other things. Here's some other situations that you might face. And there are two capital crimes mentioned in this passage, blasphemy and murder. Things are not the same with animals, though. And this distinction uh, reminds us um, why we don't follow the same line of thinking that is sometimes taken by defenders of animal rights. Um, There are some thinkers who want to erase these distinctions between human beings and animals. They see all creatures on a continuum. We are related to them through uh, nature or evolution, they say. We can't go there with them. For example, uh, the Non-Human Rights Project, it's a new organization, it was founded in 2007. Their goal, this goal is to use the court system to sue for human rights for apes. In fact, not too long ago, they filed a writ of habeas corpus for a 26-year-old chimpanzee named Tommy who is living in a trailer in Gloversville, New York. They're filing a writ of habeas corpus because he's kept in a cage and they're trying to free him from his unlawful detention. Um, I would like to point out that Tommy did not hire his own lawyer, uh, and the case will be decided by humans, arguing by human lawyers in a human uh, court. There will be no Justice Bonobo ruling in this case. Now, this passage uh, teaches us that there's a difference between human beings and animals. And the difference is that human beings are made in God's image. 
And if one human murdered another, the just penalty is death. That boundary is to mark off and protect the sanctity of human life, us made in God's image. I mentioned this being the 41st week of the uh, 41st anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision. Do you know that in the last two years, in particular in 2011 and 2013, more restrictions have been passed regarding the issue of abortion than in the 20 years prior? We're making progress in this issue. Someone I have heard from a number of sources say it is hard to convince people that what is inside a, 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 a woman's womb is just tissue when, when, people have seen, when little children have seen the sonogram pictures of their brothers and sisters. Huh. Well, we pray that abortion will end. Now, it's often charged, we are often charged, those who speak out for justice for the unborn and for the death penalty are charged with being inconsistent. Here's the charge. On the one hand, you want to protect the life of a baby, but you want to take the life of a criminal. That is inconsistent. Don't you care about life? We say, yes, we care about life. And, but the issue total, uh, chiefly is not life, but God. God who created life. Respect for the life that he has made. It must not be destroyed. And if you destroy it, you forfeit your own life. Now, huh, we're already pushing toward the next issue, so let's, let's proceed here as we think about justice. Justice. Um, this is the passage that is often cited uh, as the source of a legal principle in Latin. And you saw, I, saw, I wrote it down there for you. The legal principle in Latin is lex talionis. And lex talionis basically translates as the law of retaliation. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This is supposed to be a principle of the Israelite criminal justice system. And it was meant actually to be a limiting principle. Its purpose was to limit vengeance. Vengeance is a, an escalating principle, isn't it? It's what vengeance does. If you knock out my tooth, I'll break your bones. Well, if you break your bone, my bones, I'll cut your legs off. Vengeance is an escalating principle. Justice here in the Bible is to be a limited principle. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And the principle was not applied literally. God is not uh, commanding that they pluck someone's eye out as punishment or rip somebody's tooth out. God's here speaking about financial compensation. If you kill someone's animal, you must pay them the uh, cost of the animal. Later in the Old Testament, it talks about a slave. And if a slave, through uh, carelessness on his master's uh, part, loses an eye... You're not supposed to pluck the master's eye out. Instead, what the slavery is supposed to merit, what's just compensation to them, is freedom. Is, is freedom. That's how a slave would be freed. He lost his eye. There is one issue, though, where financial restitution cannot be made, where you can't pay adequate retaliation, adequate restitution. And that's is if you take a human life. Take a human life, you must be put it to death. And this is not a law that the New Testament apostles or even the Lord Jesus uh, revoked. Sometimes people point to Matthew 5.38. Here's the reason, uh, or here's the example of, um, of when some people say Jesus revoked this law. It's so important I wrote the reference twice. <laughs> look what Matthew 5.38 says. This is often cited when discuss. Oh, look at that. That's a quote from my sermon. This is often cited when discussing this legal principle. Look what the Lord says. I'm going to have to talk. 
I'm going to talk to my editor about that next time I'm looking in the mirror. Here's what it says. You have heard that it was said. Here's, this is actually Jesus. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, Jesus is not trying here to undo what Leviticus 24 says. He's trying to undo its misapplication. Leviticus 24 is a passage of scripture addressed to a nation speaking about their criminal justice system. And some people in Jesus' day had taken that verse and they were trying to apply it to personal relationships. Uh, it, It was supposed to be in the law, but they were trying, mandating that it had to be done in interpersonal relationships. And that's what Jesus is trying to stop. Can you imagine what it would be like to try to apply this principle interpersonally with your friendship or your marriage? You forgot my birthday? Fine. I'm going to forget your anniversary. Um, uh, You leave your socks on the floor? I'm not doing the laundry anymore. Uh, You want to be grumpy? I'll be grumpy back because the Bible says eye for eye and tooth for tooth and I believe the Bible. Right? That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus uh, says that Christians are to be marked personally in our interpersonal relations by selfless love and forgiveness. Lex Talionis is a wonderful way to run a criminal justice system and a, also a wonderful way to ruin a friendship. Uh, Acts 25 actually shows Paul upholding this principle. Look what he says. He is before uh, uh, Festus, who is a Roman governor. And look what he says. I am now standing before Caesar's court on trial, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. It is your right, uh, Festus, to execute me if I have committed a crime that deserves death. Uh, Look at Romans 13. He continues this. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants Agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Why do they bear the sword? What do you use a sword for? Executions. Uh, uh, The New Testament upholds this principle that's first set down in Genesis. It's codified here in Leviticus 24. Capital punishment, the death penalty, is not inherently immoral. Now, though, this passage should give us pause. Leviticus 24 establishes the morality of the death penalty, but it also uh, demands that it be applied fairly without racial or ethnic distinctions. And here's where we struggle. You don't have to look very far into this issue to understand, uh, to find numerous articles and numerous arguments 
that indicate racial and class disparity as to how the death penalty is applied in our country. For example, uh, a commonly studied statistic. 35% of the men on death row are African American, but they only represent 12.6% of the general population. If you study all of the crimes that have been committed, you are most likely to see a death penalty handed down if the crime involves a, an African-American uh, uh, criminal, uh, convicted criminal, uh, uh, who attacked in some way a Caucasian uh, victim. No, that, that's true. On the other hand, I think to myself, well, I read the statistics. Um, in the last 10 years, more Caucasians have actually been executed than African Americans. Kirby Anderson points out, just because there is this, this number difference doesn't mean there's discrimination. I'm not sure this is the best illustration, but he says, think for a moment about the makeup of the National Hockey League. There are very few African Americans in the National Hockey League. It is not a result of racial discrimination. We can't be wrong about this issue, can we? The death penalty, you have to get this one right. There's also studies that indicate that, that your likelihood of being, uh, of being sentenced to the death penalty has to do with how, how inexpensive an attorney you can hire, how much money that you have. We can't get this wrong, and I, I have sympathies with people who argue that it's impossible for us to have the death penalty equitably in our country. Now, I'm not an expert in these studies, but I'm, I'm inclined to think that the studies that, that indicate some sort of discrimination actually say more about our criminal justice system than the death penalty itself. Let's use them to fix the criminal justice system and not revoke the death penalty. But, oh, this bears much more thought, much, much more thought. In the time we have remaining, though, I want to think about blasphemy together. Let, let's talk about that, shall we? It's last because it's the most important issue that's in this passage. In fact, it's central to this passage, blasphemy. There's, there's an episode here in which God defends and he demands that people defend his name. Now, you could ask the question, why doesn't God turn the other cheek? Jesus told us to turn the other cheek. Why doesn't God turn the other cheek? We're not exactly sure here what this crime is exactly. He misused God's name in some way. Most people believe, most scholars believe that he used God's name to curse his opponent. That's how we most often use God's name, isn't it? We use God's name to damn other people. That's probably what he did. This concern, though, for God's name should not surprise you. In fact, this whole section of Leviticus has been built around reverence for God's name. Flip, flip back with me to a couple chapters in Leviticus. I want you to go over to first Leviticus chapter 20, verse 3. Leviticus 20, verse 3. God is speaking here about people who are offering their children to the false god Molech. And he says in, in Leviticus 20, verse 3, I myself will set my face against him and will cut him off his, from his people. For by sacrificing his children to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. Now go forward a minute to chapter 22, verse 2. Verse, chapter 22, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, here's verse 2, Tell Aaron and his sons to treat with respect the sacred offerings the Israelites consecrate to me, so that they will not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Then look down here at uh, verse later in chapter 22, verse 32. 
The last verse in chapter 22, verse 32. Do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. God is consistently concerned about his name. I haven't mentioned it before, but it's all through these chapters in Leviticus. Do not profane my name. He's determined that his name is to be honored. Now, why is that? Because God is committed to, for your own sake, upholding before us the most valuable thing in the universe. In the Old Testament, your name was representative of your person, and there is nothing more valuable, more praiseworthy, more to be honored than God himself. Do you remember what happened in your house if you were sitting at the dinner table and you talked back to your mother? I heard a... uh, Somebody speaking about this, he was from the south, and they were sitting around a dinner table one time, and, and he spoke back to his mother. And uh, his father, who was usually a very quiet, very reserved man, uh, said to him with ice in his voice, don't you dare sass your mama. What was that man doing? He was uh, upholding, protecting, defending the worth and value of the person at the table who was most precious to him. Don't you sass your mama. Now, if you come to my office and you take off of my desk a box of Kleenex, the box of Kleenex that I have there, and you throw it on the floor and you stomp on it and you pick it up and you throw it against the wall, I probably won't care much. I'll think you're a little crazy, but I won't care much. But if you take one of the pictures of my grandmother there in my office, and I have two of them, grandmas and pictures, if you take one of those and you throw them on the floor, and you stomp on them, I will stop you. I will object. I will probably be angry because you are damaging something that is precious to me. In fact, this is what anger is for. This is what wrath and justice is for. It's to defend what should be defended. If you never defend anything, it means you don't love anything. Anger, wrath, judgment is the flip side of of love. You don't love something if you won't protect it. Maybe part of your struggle here is that that you're confusing your wrath with God's wrath. Um, What often happens is that your anger actually defends the indefensible. You get angry when people challenge your plans to sit around and do nothing. Or you get angry when people challenge your plans, your preferences, your expectations. I get angry under those circumstances. Why is it okay for God to do this? Why is it okay for God to demand stoning over his name, but you can't stone someone over your name? And the reason is, he's God and you're not. Nothing in the universe is more valuable than his own name. He has shown the Israelites his greatness and his goodness by rescuing them from Israel, and now for their own sake, he defends his name in front of them. I wonder how keenly you feel this disrespect. How, how sharply. This is a sharp passage. This whole chapter actually is built on the centrality of God. He's the son at the center of the moral universe in Israel. It's through him that we see that all people are image bearers and thus life is worthy of protection and defending. It's through him that we, that we see that crime must be punished justly. He's, he's the one who is at the center of the universe and who upholds the integrity and the value of his own name. And I wonder how your response to this passage, what it says about how much you value him and his name. 
And the church is not a government. Um, we are not a nation like Israel. We don't stone people for, for blasphemy. Christianity, in fact, is not an honor religion like Islam. We don't respond with violence to defaming of the name of Jesus. There are those who are uh, uh, followers of Islam who, if you insult Allah or if you uh, defame Muhammad's name, draw him in a picture, a cartoon, do something insulting, they will feel that it's their duty to uh, execute you, to murder you. That is not how Christianity works. Christianity does not respond to those who insult Jesus with stones. It responds to those who insult Jesus with love. Christianity is not an honor religion. But we read this and we understand God still takes this seriously. How much are you entertained by people whose language consistently blasphemes God's name? I was um, uh, at the library not too long ago. We were downtown at the library and we were looking through the DVDs and I saw a movie that I thought, oh, my kids might like to watch this. This will be good. So I got it, and as I do before I've seen uh, movies, especially with my children, I went to Focus on the Family's website, plugged in uh, movie reviews. Very helpful. And I read through what it says about the movie reviews, and one of the things that they do in the reviews is they count how many swear words are in the review, are in the movie. I had a friend who did this. He he had a clipboard with a flashlight, and he used to go to movies, and he had a, a, a checklist, and he'd write every time they used certain words. So I was uh, looking down and, and it came to uh, profane content, as the category, and, and it said um, two uses of the word hell, except it didn't even say hell, it just had H and four, three asterisks. <laughs> two uses of the word hell and two misuses of God's name. You know, the thought that went through my mind is, oh good, at least it's not any of the big ones. At, at least it's not, you know, those words that where we talk about feces and fornication in a way that you really don't want your... At least it's not one of the, the big ones. It's shameful to think about that. that, that that's the first thought that went through my mind. Well, it's, it, it's just God's name, right? It's just the name that we'll sing about, that we, that we have in our songs. It's just, just the name that is, is higher than any other name. It's just that name. I, I, I wonder how it catches you when, when you hear that, how, how it stops you, or how you respond, how, how keenly you feel this. This passage actually points us to one of the great ironies uh, of the New Testament. You know why the Lord Jesus was crucified? The charge that was brought against him? Blasphemy. He is a blasphemer, they said. Uh, uh, They stone in this passage this blasphemer. And the Jews in the the New Testament, they want to crucify Jesus for his blasphemy. The irony is, he was God. He wasn't blaspheming when he claimed to be God. He's God in the flesh. He's come to rescue us. They crucified him as a blasphemer. And the irony is that in dying on the cross, he rescued us from the wrath of the God who we have blasphemed. I wonder if you, did you notice in the passage, we, we mentioned, we passed over real quick, about the, the people, how they had, to, they had to put their heads on the, their hands on the blasphemer's head. It's, it's mentioned here, all those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head. Now why is that? Strange. It's not the only place in the book of Leviticus where you lay your hands on something's head. That's what happens with all the sacrifices. And what do you do? When you lay your head on an animal sacrifice, you are transferring your guilt to them. Apparently, even hearing blasphemy 
um, you get splashed with his guilt. So before they stone him, they put their hands on this man and say, you take your own guilt. I am not guilty for what you have done. I heard it. The splash of your vomitous words landed on my feet, but I did not want it. Here you go. It's yours. The guilt is yours. When the Lord Jesus died for us on the cross, he took our guilt on himself. He, he He has received it. It's been transferred to him. The promise of the Bible is that all who believe, all who turn to him in faith, find forgiveness and life. This passage indicts me in two ways. It indicts me because uh, when, I, when I struggle to see the severity of this punishment, it shows me in what little regard I have for God's name and God's character. And it also indicts me and it shows me how, un, how worthy I am of this same punishment. Oh, this passage is loaded with ethical teaching, isn't it? I've only just scratched the surface of these massive issues, but the center of it all is is the God who is worthy of our deepest reverence, who speaks to us about race and justice and life, and who models for us what is truly valuable. And in pursuing his name, we find life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come into your presence and we do so gladly through the Lord Jesus who is our Savior. Father, I, I thank you for this, this story. It is, it is sobering to us. Guard us from thinking when we read it that you are the one on trial and help us to see our own hearts. Father, as we, we think about these broad issues, um, we fail. We fail in, in how we talk at times about race and ethnicity, where we fail in how we think about justice, we, we fail in how we think about life. We are, we are uh, as, as guilty as these, these first hearers of, of, of violating these, these principles. Help us, help us. Would you, Lord Jesus, lift up your own name in our church and lift up your own name in our hearts? that we would would value it and cherish it and treasure it. Do these things for us and in us and through us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.